just under 800 years ago, in the midst of a dark and gloomy Icelandic winter, a story was written down. The tale had already been told for hundreds of years. It talked of myths and monsters, but great heroes too. And now, because of the revolutionary new literary tradition sweeping through Iceland, it would be recorded in its current state for posterity. From Greenland to the Mediterranean, all across the Viking world, up until the 1200s, the story had been memorised by one generation of poets after another, becoming one of the most popular and long-lasting of all. The story is still being retold today. The saga of Ragnar Lothbrok. But is there any truth to the tale? Let's find out. In the year 814, the great king Charlemagne, ruler of the largest empire in Western Europe since the fall of Rome, was dead. In the wake of his death, his once prosperous realm soon devolved into civil war between his descendants. In some of the other states that filled the void left by the Romans, such as in Visigothic Spain and Ostrogothic Italy, the Roman tradition of giving hereditary inheritance to one son had become the norm. This wasn't to be the case for the Franks. They continued their ancient tradition of dividing up an inheritance between sons, a tradition that had plagued them for centuries. When the dust from the succession finally settled, all of Charlemagne's hard work had been undone largely through the actions of his own descendants. Three distinct kingdoms were born. On the one side was East Francia, the state which would eventually go on to become Germany. In the middle was Lotharingia, a realm which would eventually be absorbed by the other two kingdoms. In the west, however, in the original heartlands of the Franks, along the Atlantic coast and the hinterlands of Gaul, was West Francia, the kingdom that would eventually become France. It was here, under the rule of Louis the Pious and his descendant, Charles the Bald, that a new, distinct lack of centralised power would increasingly be capitalised upon by a new power. For years, the Franks had pushed ever onwards to the pagan north to conquer new lands and bring more people into the Christian fold. And now, a reckoning was on the way. At first, they came in trickles, just handfuls of boats trying their luck. But as the years dragged on, ever larger waves of piratical sea raiders came flooding down from the unforgiving north. The Viking Age had begun. Frankish sources of the time mention Horik, the king of the Danes, likely just one Danish king amongst many, being undermined by the West Frankish king Louis the Pious, who had supported a rival claimant to Horik's throne, Harold Clack, 
in a struggle to overthrow him. Whilst this policy of divide and rule might have worked under the strong hand of Charlemagne, whose elite army might have made light work of the piratical newcomers from the north, standards had slipped over the years, and the Frankish army was now a mere shadow of its former self. After Horik successfully fought off the attacks from his rival, the full ferocity of the Northmen was about to come crashing down catastrophically upon Louis's head. First in the form of small fleets, and later in the form of a powerful and influential warlord who would smash his way onto the scene over the coming years. If the legends and stories later told about his life even bear any resemblance to the truth, then he was one of the first examples of a sea king during the Viking Age, and certainly one of the most memorable. Ragnar Lothbrok had arrived. Since the end of the Saxon Wars of the late 8th century, Scandinavian raids had been conducted into Francia. Those wars had been a long and drawn-out conflict against the inhabitants of Old Saxony, the still pagan land immediately to the south of Denmark. And they had ended in the forced conversion or death of much of its inhabitants. It was after this 30-year-long evangelising crusade that the Franks had first come into direct contact with the inhabitants of Denmark though the reputation of the Franks had almost certainly preceded them. As long as the Emperor lived, Europe remained largely safe. According to Charlemagne's biographer Einhard, writing just a handful of years later, the only places looted and sacked during his lifetime were certain islands off the coast of Frisia, near to the German coast. He even set up squadrons of coast guard to defend the river systems. After his death, all this was to change. With no strong-handed, powerful ruler to lead it, Charlemagne's empire quickly unravelled, and within just a few years, Danes moved in like carrion to pick at the corpse. Squadrons of three or four opportunistic ships became common throughout the 810s and 820s, and they met with significant success by raiding remote and lightly populated areas on the peripheries of the West Frankish coastline. By the 830s, however, these fleets began to consist of tens of vessels, and as words travelled of the successes they found, they increasingly tested their luck against larger and larger targets. They sacked the silver minting centre of Dorestad in 834, 835, 836, and plundered the trading town of Valcaran in 837. On the face of it, King Horik seems to have disapproved of these raids, which he publicly condemned in letters to Charlemagne's successor, Louis the Pious. Though this could easily have been a ruse, it does suggest that in reality, King Horik held little power over the increasingly unruly and ambitious warlords of Denmark. In 845, 
an entirely new breed of army arrived on the continent. Not just tens of vessels, but a fleet of hundreds, crammed full with as many as 5,000 Viking warriors. Where this fleet came from is anyone's guess, but according to the Frankish sources, it was led by a man named Regin Harris, a figure who a number of modern scholars associate with the most famous Viking of all, Ragnar Lothbrok. A number of sagas relate the tales of Ragnar's early life, yet the vast majority of these are likely to be later additions, added in as the tale of his legends and deeds became inflated over time, especially as a large number of later warlords claimed descent from him and would have wanted to inflate their own egos, much like he himself apparently claimed to have been a direct descendant of Odin. As did most Danish kings and warlords at the time, including his overlord, Horik. From 12th century runic inscriptions on the Orkneys to the Icelandic sagas of the 13th century, Ragnar became nothing short of a celebrity in the centuries after his death. Truth be told, if anything of his unusually flamboyant nature as related in the sagas has any basis in reality, Ragnar himself would probably be quite amused by these later stories that grew up around him. Nevertheless, whether he wore magical hairy trousers or not, the Ragnar had landed on the Frankish coastline in 845, commanded a huge force of warriors. Over 5,000 Vikings, if the Frankish sources are to be believed, all crammed aboard around 120 longships. Whether they had been sent directly by Horik or not, the Danish king was about to have his spectacular revenge against the Franks. Certainly one of the most colourful members of Horik's court, Ragnar's surname allegedly stemmed from the cowhide trousers that he wore into battle. Which, if the stories are to be believed, he claimed offered him magical protection against enemies. According to the Old Norse sagas, which are quasi-historical at very best, and pure myth a lot of the time, especially during this early period, he made these magical trousers by boiling cowhide in pitch, and subsequently used them to win his second wife Aslaug by defeating a serpent that guarded her. Precisely because he was one of the earliest sea kings to ravage Europe, if Ragnar Lothbrok was indeed a real historical character, and scholars today still rigorously debate the issue, his genuine historical accomplishments have been obscured over time. Over the centuries, stories were told to fill in the gaps of his life, and genuine events were embellished so much that his tale became largely a fantasy. Nonetheless, if he was indeed a real historical character, and several Frankish sources seem to imply that he was, Ragnar was no mere pirate like those who came before him. He was one of the very first instances of a sea king, a seaborne ruler, 
powerful enough in his own right to launch his own autonomous attacks and seize lands for himself and his followers on foreign shores. Reginerus, or Ragnar, had probably been active in Francia since the 830s, and by 841 he was granted land in Frisia by King Charles the Bald, probably as a bulwark against other Viking raiders. After a few years, however, he lost these lands, as well as his favour with the king. In 845, he entered the River Seine at the head of a huge host, the largest to hit Francia yet. In a time when armies usually numbered hundreds of men, according to the Frankish sources, Ragnar's force numbered 5,000. They sacked Rouen and made off with huge amounts of wealth before heading further south towards the capital, where they systematically plundered the fertile districts around Paris. Like his predecessors and his descendants after him, Ragnar only fought when the odds were with him and tended to favour blitzkrieg tactics to terrorise, demoralise and overwhelm opponents before they could muster a strong enough force to oppose him. Determined to not allow the invaders to sack the royal abbey of Saint-Denis, Charles assembled his army into two parts, one of which he placed on either side of the river. A shrewd tactician, Ragnar simply attacked the smaller army, wiping it out in full view of their helpless comrades on the other side. The Frankish warriors could do nothing but watch, as just over a hundred survivors were sacrificed to Odin on a small island in the River Seine. Faced with insurmountable odds, the horrified defenders of the city could do little but wait for the eventual Viking attack. At the time, Paris was situated on an island in the River Seine. It was fortified with strong defences. Though isolated as it was, it was perfectly suited for a Viking blockade and attack. On March 29th, Easter Sunday, almost certainly a date picked on purpose in order to demoralise the already terrified locals, Ragnar's men arrived and plundered the outskirts of the city. Before long, however, disease began to run rife throughout Ragnar's camp, which significantly weakened his position. Terms were eventually offered and Charles begrudgingly consented to paying around £6,000 of gold and silver to get Ragnar and his men to leave. This was the very first of at least 13 payments of Danegeld, paid over the century to come to get Viking raiders to leave Francia peacefully. Whilst Charles was heavily criticised for this payment, he had bigger fish to fry. His brothers, disgruntled nobles and regional revolts all threatened to stamp out his position at any time. He preferred instead to try to get the Vikings, arguably the least of his concerns at the time, to leave peacefully, if at all possible. Ragnar agreed to withdraw from Paris, though he seems to have pillaged several sites along the coast on his way home, presumably to Denmark. Upon his arrival, he allegedly showed the wealth he had acquired to King Horik, and boasted about how easy the attack had been though he also related that the only resistance they had met was by the long-deceased Saint Germain of Paris, who he believed 
had sent the plague that had tore through his camp. Shortly after Ragnar's return, however, the king of East Francia, Louis the German, had apparently forced his overlordship over the Danes. Probably only some of the southerners, though this prompted Horik to execute many of the men who had been responsible for the Paris raid, and to seize back their plunder to return to the Franks. Along with a whole host of other reasons, namely economic and societal, this cracking down on raiders could be one reason why so many Scandinavians left Denmark at this point to arrive in other Viking settlements across the North Sea, such as in Ireland and the Scottish Isles. Ragnar, meanwhile, had apparently already left by this point, embarking on a piratical career that remains impossible to detangle from the mists of legend. He may have gone raiding into the Irish Sea, back to Francia, or, most famously of all, he may have raided into Northumbria, though the king he supposedly fought against, Ayla, wouldn't become king there until the mid-860s. In 854, Horik was killed by one of his nephews, and the exiles from the Paris raid apparently were allowed to return home. Though Regenherus, or Ragnar, is never heard from again in the Frankish sources. Stories abounded to his eventual demise. Some say he was killed during a botched attack on the Isle of Anglesey. Others, that he died in a civil war between Danes and Norsemen off the coast of Ireland. Most famous of all, however, is the tale that he was shipwrecked off the English coast in a storm and captured by the Northumbrian king, Ayla, who, in a cruel punishment against the old sea king, had him thrown into a pit of snakes. According to one telling of the tale, his famous trousers protected him to the very end, the disgruntled English king having to pull his foe out of the pit to have them removed before throwing him back in. Viking raiders again returned to Paris in the 880s, this time led by another of the most famous Vikings in history, a sea king named Rollo. In reality, no relation to Ragnar. In one of the great turning points in the history of France, and potentially one of the largest sieges of the Viking Age, a huge force of many hundreds of ships was finally repelled in 886. By this time, much of Britain had already fell under the sway of the Vikings, this time, according to the legends, under a brood of brothers, who, according to a number of traditions, called themselves the Sons of Ragnar. According to the tale of Ragnar Lodbrok, written down sometime in the 13th century, but told in mead halls from Dublin to Kiev for centuries before, Ragnar had several sons, all legendary sea kings in their own right. According to the saga, as he was dying in Ella's snake pit, Ragnar made a famous reference to these sons. Other little piggies will grant when they hear their own balls of it. 
these sons of Ragnar were indeed illustrious figures. Ivar the Boneless, perhaps the king of Dublin for a time, and progenitor of the famed Uyamer dynasty that would terrorise the Irish Sea for centuries to come. Bjorn Ironside, raider of the Mediterranean, later said to have retired to Sweden. Ubba, the Duke of the Frisians, and participant in the invasion of Britain in the 860s. Halfdan Ragnarsson, one of the first kings of Viking-occupied Northumbria. And Sigurd, Snake in the Eye, born from a sorceress. All famed warriors in their own right, though in all likelihood not in fact descended from Ragnar. In the sagas, upon hearing of their father's death, Ivar and Ubba both swore to cross the sea to avenge him. Halfdan was playing chess, and when told the news, he gripped a piece so hard that his nails bled. The impending invasion is known to us today as the Great Heathen Army. The legend of the Krakomal, probably composed in the Scottish Isles in the 12th century, epitomises the legend that Ragnar became when it records his last words, sung aloud as the snakes of Ella's pit circled in. It gladdens me to know that Baldur's father makes ready the benches for a banquet. Soon we shall be drinking ale from curved horns. The champion who comes into Odin's dwelling, Valhalla, does not lament his death. I shall not enter his hall with words of fear upon my lips. The Aesir will welcome me. Death comes without lamenting. Eager am I to depart. The Disir summon me home. Those whom Odin sends for me, Valkyries from the halls of the Lord of Hosts. Gladly shall I drink ale in the high seat with Aesir. The days of my life are ended. I laugh as I die. <laughs>